The American Cinematographer podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera, from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm joined by visual effects legend Phil Tippett, who's here to talk about his career, his creative process, and the 30-year journey to realizing his epic and disturbing magnum opus, Mad God. But first, the July 2022 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now, with a cover featuring the work of cinematographer John Grillo for Michael Mann's HBO Max series, Tokyo Vice. Grillo shares his approach to filming the series set in Tokyo's criminal underworld in our Signature Styles feature article, which also includes insights from Vanya Chernyul ASC on filming the HBO Max historical drama, The Gilded Age, and Danny Cohen BSC about his work on the Apple TV Plus spy thriller series, Slow Horses. Also in this issue, Tommy Maddox Upshaw ASC details his visual approach to the Showtime science fiction series, The Man Who Fell to Earth, a sequel to the 1976 film of the same name, photographed by Anthony Richmond, ASC, BSC. Carl Walter Lindenlaub, ASC, production designer Sophie Beecher, and director Otto Bathurst team up to talk about adapting the Halo video game franchise into a television series for Paramount+. The piece goes into detail about their collaborative world-building process and focuses on some of the series' largest sets, built on stages at Corda Studios in Hungary. Salvatore Totino, ASC AIC, gives his account of recreating Hollywood in the 1970s for Paramount Plus's The Offer, a dramatization of the making of The Godfather, which was shot by Gordon Willis, ASC. In the first six of ten episodes, Totino makes a point of distinguishing his own work from Willis's, with a widescreen aspect ratio and distinct looks for Los Angeles and New York City. You can find out how he does it with a print or standalone digital subscription to American Cinematographer magazine. The print subscription includes the digital edition. This month's issue also includes a look at the virtual production of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Virtual production itself is a strange new world, and you can count on us to explore the technology as it continues to rapidly evolve. The ASC roster continues to expand with the addition of Christopher Knorr, ASC. Son of commercial cinematographer Carl Knorr, he worked as a camera assistant on such films as Crimes and Misdemeanors, shot by Sven Nickvist, ASC, and When Harry Met Sally, shot by Barry Sonnenfeld. He soon transitioned into shooting independent features while working as a camera operator for Ellen Curris, ASC, on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Be Kind Rewind, and the documentary Public Speaking, and for Robert Richardson, ASC, on the Rolling Stones documentary Shine a Light. Noor's credits include the TV series Gotham, Godfather of Harlem, and Succession. His feature credits include Godmothered, Bashira, and Sinister. Congratulations, Chris and welcome. This episode of the American Cinematographer podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students with a solid working knowledge of cinematography who are seeking to build their skill set, this five-day seminar is taught in Los Angeles by top directors of photography. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques and instruction in current workflow practices. Specialized instruction may cover such subjects as commercial product lighting, the use of drones, and virtual production methods. In-person instruction takes place at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities, with all necessary equipment provided. 
Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students, and the final in-person sessions for 2022 will take place on September 12th through the 16th, October 17th through the 21st, and November 7th through the 11th. The November session will feature a focus on shooting motion picture film. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. And now, it's time for the interview. Those of you who are familiar with the name Phil Tippett probably know him from his stop-motion animation and puppetry work for the first Star Wars trilogy, Dragon Slayer, RoboCop 1 and 2, Jurassic Park, and Starship Troopers, just to name a handful. With a resume like that, it would be difficult to overstate the significance of his contributions to the world of visual effects. In between the lucrative commercial assignments and Oscar-winning studio features, Tippett somehow found the time to finish his dream project, an experimental animated film called Mad God. It just took him 30 years to do it. The story begins with a corroded diving bell descending into a ruined city. Touching down in an ominous fortress guarded by zombie-like sentries, an assassin emerges onto a desolate landscape inhabited by freakish denizens, monsters, and mad scientists, and experiences what can only be described as an evolution beyond comprehension. Combining live action and stop motion, miniature sets, and other innovative techniques, Mad God is a unique and grotesquely beautiful labor of love. And the mastermind of it all, Phil Tippett, is here to tell us more about its creation. Phil, thanks for being here with us today. I was really blown away by Mad God and by the level of detail and its, its kind of mesmerizing meditative qualities. It's, it's really very different from the kinds of films, you know, we've become, we've come to associate with your work, like, like Star Wars and, and RoboCop and, and Jurassic Park. And I'd like to begin our conversation by, by asking you where this movie came from. Well, I mean, my, you know, I, I was really lucky, you know, to work on all of those movies. And, I, yeah, as a kid, that's what I aspired to. And, um, you know, got to work in, in studios and, stages that were like made in the you know 20s and the 30s and 40s we shot on a stage at universal for jurassic park that still had the wall from the hunchback of notre dame you know the um you know lon cheney version anyway so but it, it was so exciting I and mean, you just absorb that you know and it's just these places have a vibe you know, and it, that's very kind of ghostly that, that you know, you pick up on. And, uh, and so it was really great to be a part of that old Hollywood thing before everything got, you know, so commercialized and everything. And of course, it always was. Uh, you know, I mean, silent movies were a huge influence on me, you know, because I like, in many ways, artistically silent movies more than uh, movies with sound. I, although, don't get me wrong, I, I'm really a big fan of, of sound effects and music. But there's something craft-wise about the kind of filmmaking that you get with silent movies that, you know, certainly influenced me. Yeah, it's, it's almost like they're an elemental form of cinema, uh, silent films are. If, if you go back and read, like, the essays by Eisenstein or, or Pudovkin, the, the early, like, Soviet montage theory guys, like, they felt that the invention of sync sound was, like, the worst thing to happen to cinema. I totally, you know, believe that because you are not encumbered by exposition. You know, you just have to show it. 
you know, and it's, it makes for a very different kind of experience. Well, you know, I found the experience of, of watching Mad God comparable to like a long sit with a very detailed painting by someone like, I don't know, Francis Bacon or Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, I guess this was a conscious decision, right, to back away from something more narrative towards something more experiential. I guess, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing. Like most artists, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, my, my day job was as a commercial artist working on commercial films, but the two movies that I worked on with Paul Verhoeven, you know, he was a terrific mentor and uh, we share a very similar worldview. We agreed that we were probably both existential Buddhists. <laughs> and um, so, you know, Paul, Paul was fearless. He, he didn't care if his, when asked, who, who do you make movies for? He said, I make them for myself. And uh, when asked, why did movies have to be about sex and violence? He said, movies don't have to be about anything. And like art, you know, what is a, uh, tell me what the meaning of uh, Ed Reinhardt or Mark Rothko is, you know, good luck. You know, it's it's a vibe. It's kind of like being on the beach of Normandy, you know. It's like you just soak it up. And, and it's uh, internal that's in no way really explicable. You know, and I don't know any artist that reads reviews, you know, of anything. Because they're just, for the most part, unless they're historical, you know, silly. In revisiting your work, I was able to pick up on some motifs. Like, your characters don't just move. They, they really come alive. Can you elaborate on this approach to characterization in animation? No, not really. You know, I, I really don't think about it that much. Well, it's a vibe that you pick up on, and it's just kind of like a, you know, you just riff, you know, like maybe like a jazz musician, which I, I know nothing about, but it's just like you, like you know, I was saying, you know, earlier, you just make things up as you go along, and it, it, it takes shape almost like you're transcribing it. You know, you're, you're not really operating by intention, by observation and the unconscious. I think I've heard you talk about this in some documentary or commentary before, though, like where with Ed 209, who could, you know, just be this big walking tank, but you really made it more than that in the way that it walks and talks or tries to go down steps, or even at the end when Murphy blows it up and the toe does this little death wiggle. These feel like touches that are really specific to your work. Well, no, I mean, for, for instance, that toe thing, I mean, the falling down the stairs was, you know, Ed and Paul. The toe twitch I stole from uh, the uh, original King Kong, you know, when the stegosaur is dying, the stegosaur's toe twitches. And so I always use that. There's a bunch of stuff, you know, like the Tyrannosaur and Kong when he scratches his ear. Um, you know, the characters in Mad God do that. And uh, the RoboCop Twitch. Yeah, I just, I steal from everywhere. Do you see yourself as playing the role of these characters like an actor would? It really, it really depends. I mean, I think, you know, once you, ca- you know, cross that so-called 10,000 hour barrier, Everything becomes very intuitive, but um, you know, when I was working on on commercial films, I would do, 
Yeah, kind of a trick like Walter Murch would do with editing, and but a, a variation on that. I would, I would say, act out a shot with a stopwatch, and I like do it say like ten times, and uh, until my muscle memory was making it add up to to you know the same time until it felt time wise right, and then I would I would break that down into incremental moves and see how long that took until those moves in aggregate added up to the entire performance. Then I took that when I was doing the, the um, surgery scene in the hospital in Mad God, the, the boom down shot I had shot 20, 30 years earlier. And so, uh, I, I, that was all with a model. And so I built a room that was identical to the um, miniature. And I got um, my assistant, Nikita, who I was fascinated with her eyes because she had like Bridget Holm eyes. And then uh, the doctor was uh, Satish, was an Indian. And I had them perform the action, an action, and, and do it like 10 times until their, their muscle memory was locked down. And then, and, and this took like three weeks to, to figure out. And once I figured it out, I realized I ripped it off from Japanese horror movies. But it was um, a variation on that where I would have them do the performance backwards as slow as they possibly could like and i left it to them but i meant like as slow as as they could and it would take you know say like for a scene where they're entering the room it, it might take like eight or ten minutes and uh they would do that backwards so that that performance that they once had ingrained there was no way that they could possibly do it, but they would do a variation on it that gave it this look that was, um, you know, consistent with the rest of the movie. And, you know, and it just took for, you know, weeks to figure that out, you know, and I should have known it earlier. To that point, uh, how important is technical craft in the storytelling process? Um, it's very important, you know, it's just, um, that and, the uh, you know, so-called content are, are inseparable from each other, you know. You mentioned this, uh, 10,000 hour barrier before. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, there's some, you know, I guess it's like, um, I don't know if you'd call it an urban myth, but that, uh, was bandied around for a while that um, you don't really get what you're doing until you've crossed the 10,000-hour mark, which was, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, a colloquial way of saying put in the time. I mean, there's so many artists that started when they were five years old, like, like I did. When I was doing Return, uh, no, what was it? Um, Empire Strikes Back. I was not at the skill level 
that I needed to be at that time because, you know, the, the chess scene in Star Wars was, eh, it was okay, but it was kind of funky. Aside from that, you know, I, I worked on, you know, television commercials and, you know, did most of my experimenting. I mean, I always preferred to be a gig worker and make money and take time off and, and do my own stuff. But by the time Empire came on, the um, requirements were such that I, I just was not ready. And But everybody else kind of liked what I was doing, but I was like, me, eh, you know. Uh, and so Dennis Murin found this uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder, and fortunately we had a lot of pre-production time, and the requirements, say, of making the snow walkers walk was, you know, we had to find that, that footfall pattern. And, you know, we did things like go out and sh- do Moorbridge-type stuff uh, with elephants and studied that and elephant footfall wasn't right because it was not uh, anyway so I just spent a lot of time in, in pre-production while I was making other stuff just practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing you know like every day and then it, it's like riding a bike or uh, a, a skateboard one day it's just like bink, it, it clicks in and and you get it I, I guess I Across the 10,000 hour threshold or whatever it is. You know, you mentioned Empire and and the Imperial Walkers and especially the whole Hoth sequence with the Tauntauns, um, all of your puppet work uh, in that film. And when I was thinking about the evolutionary steps in your work as it applies to the films, as it applies to Empire and the other films we're talking about, uh, Go Motion was one of the first things that popped into my mind. And the work that you did with ILM on that film was such a leap forward. It was a small thing. It was a small leap. It was motion blur. But it added something that wasn't there before. And it evolved the craft of animation, I think, in a really significant way. You did it again and again with RoboCop and then Jurassic Park and then Starship Troopers. Getting back to Mad God, how does that film fit into this evolution from a creative or technical perspective, especially considering that while you were making all these big, you know, Hollywood commercial films, you were you were making your own film. You were making Mad God. Well, it had just gotten to this point where it was just very intuitive for me. It was like breathing. You know, I just didn't even have to think about it at all. You saw the field of animation changing over the 30-plus years of production, over the 30-plus years of making Mad God. What changed, if anything, about your process I mean, it became intuitive, yes, but in some of the other interviews you've given for Mad God, you talk about the field of animation as a whole changing with the development of digital technology, especially. So what I want to get at is, is did these changes change you? And if so, how? No, I mean, everything changes significantly with, with the technology. And, you know, the go motion thing, I just had to, you know, rewire my brain, you know, because it was much more like um, laying down tracks of music, you know, each one axis at a time instead of stop motion where you're kind of sculpting in time in a different time frame. Uh, And then fortunately, by the time computer graphics took over everything, I was at a point, you know, I really don't care for it that much. I'm, I'm really illiterate, computer illiterate. You know, I can, I'm dyslexic and 
word is about as far as I can go. But, but luckily, I don't, um, I got kicked upstairs, you know, and so I was more, the way I looked at it with directors is I was um, essentially a, a choreographer, you know, that was helping them block their scenes, you know, and uh, Paul said that, you know, he considered me a co-director, you know, along with the second unit director, because without me, there wasn't a movie, you know, without the bugs. And, uh, and it was such a huge leap, you know, that absolutely terrified me that, uh, you know, to, you know, Jurassic Park, you know, I mean, the dinosaurs, that was a vertical climb and then with thousands and hundreds of bugs you know it was like oh my god why did i take this job on but you know uh, and at that time there were the ilm had all the people and there were there were crew wars going on all the time so i found people that made concrete whole boats that were going to uc berkeley and you know a woman back east that made pies and <laughs> people that made things that had a, a, you know, that real world, you know, experience and aptitude to, to make stuff, you know, and, uh, we're talking about Starship Troopers, right? Y- y- yeah. Starship Troopers, uh, because, uh, you know, ILM had the guys from Sheridan, the Canadian guys, which was about the only school that, that taught computer graphics. And so, you know, I had, you know, some stop motion animators that we built these input devices that they they could animate. And then, you know, other people understood the process. And for some reason, it was it was easier for them to, you know, animate in the computer uh, as opposed to a a three dimensional puppet. And so I didn't have to do it. You know, I just had to sit there and, and direct. Unfortunately, I really had to micromanage at that time. And I did not like doing that. But, you know, eventually the skill level rose and schools were teaching computer graphics. So now it's like, yeah, I don't do it anymore. It it took me maybe about 10 or 12 years to train supervisors and whatnot that go out on location and shoot. So I don't have to do that anymore and put all the time into my own work. Going back to your own work, um, and keeping in mind everything that we just talked about, what about your process of directing and animating stayed the same over all this time, even if it might have been easier or cheaper or quicker to do it with computers? Well, I just didn't like the look of it. And, you know, I'm a hands-on kind of guy. Even if you're delegating the work to someone else? Well, yeah. I mean, there's, uh, you know, that kind of just comes with the territory, you know, as, as a director. You know, you just have to, you know, point and say faster, slower, greener, bluer, whatever. I was thinking about um, some of the cloud effects in Mad God and just going back to Ed 209 again, because that's the work of yours I'm most familiar with and how you created the muzzle flashes with LED lights and cotton balls. I wondered if you're still working in this practical mode that's become a part of your instinctual approach to filmmaking. Like, what's your visual language? You know, we... We talked about silent films and how cinema is a language all its own. And as a filmmaker, you know, I think you have a distinct visual language. And I'm just trying to get at what that could be. Like, what's the source of your vibe and where does it come from? Well, using Ed 209 as, a, uh, as an example, 
you know, Ed had always envisioned it as um, like one of these Japanese toys whose arms uh, terminated in, in guns. So that, that was a given. And then Craig Hayes, who designed Ed 209 and the Bugs and Troopers, um, was a really brilliant designer and came up with the um, configuration of the legs for Ed. And that took me a while because it was, you know, uh, it was not anthropomorphic in any way. And so that, that took me a while of, of testing it to figure out how the guy walked. I mean, it's like any performance. You have to just like, yeah, it could be this, it could be that. Until it's like, no, this is how it wants to be, and follow that. You've spoken about collaboration a couple of times, and I'd like you to comment on your collaboration with Mad God co-cinematographer Chris Morley. Well, I mean, uh, Chris was the you know, one of the first guys that, while I was archiving the first three minutes that I shot 20 years earlier, you know, I was looking over my shoulder and they had no idea what that movie was. And I told them it was a fair, failed experiment that I was putting in bed. And uh, Chris and Randy Link offered to do a shot. And I, the main character, the assassin, had like long since crumbled. So I rebuilt that and showed them how to make a set and showed them how to light. And that's what they, they were fans of, you know, like you, RoboCop, and, you know, watch the making of movies for, of all of those things. And that's what they wanted to do. But that epoch had, like, gone away and it was all computer graphics. So this represented an opportunity for them to do that. And, yeah, so it just kind of started. And then, you know, I got a bunch of volunteers that would work on Saturday. And, and Chris has a better eye than I do. I just kind of do things intuitively and got to this point where I would just rudimentarily set things up. I mean, I did, I, I lit a good share of the shots myself, but um, whenever, sometimes I'd have like three or four setups going at the same time and wouldn't know exactly what I wanted to do and would change things around. It could be like this, it could be like that. So I, I generally would put like, you know, two rim lights on an object and a fill light. And, you know, that was enough for me to get started. And then I'd, I'd wait for Chris to over lunch or at the end of the work day or on the weekends come in and, and actually light it, you know, where I could be off working on something else. What was he doing for you at the time? He was a, well, he started off in Roto from the Academy of Arts and then became a master compositor. And now he's the uh, lead visual effects supervisor at the studio. I saw a credit for Dennis Muren ASC as an associate producer, and he also got a special thanks as well. What was his involvement? Did I, did I give him an associate? I mean, there's so many producers on the thing. I've lost track, you know? It was like, no, I'm the producer. But I didn't realize that, um, of course, you know, the people that are running my studio were uh, very instrumental in allowing me to do it. And then all the people, you know, that were doing the, the marketing and everything and all of these people really made it happen. I, I don't know anything about that. I, don't, I still don't. I just, you know, do what they tell me to do. And then I can riff with, with you, you know, but... Um, 
you know, that's where all that stuff comes from. You know, there's this, this whole unseen army that's, you know, working behind the scenes. Did you bring um, anyone else on from your previous films? Like you mentioned working with the designer from RoboCop and Starship Troopers. Yeah, well, I had special guest stars, you know, like Dennis would come in for a few weekends and, and work on it. And uh, Dave Barry, who was a, a optical compositor back in the day, uh, would come in. And he was a major contributor. He, le- he lent me a lot of money to finish Mad God because he was like a big, big fan of stop motion. He's a, he's a filmmaker and, you know, had in- inherited a bunch of money and gave me some of it, which allowed me and addition to doing Kickstarters and uh, auctioning off, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, props from other movies and getting the studio rent free. You know, I got to pay a lot of people back, you know, so. How does working on a film that is very much of your own vision rather than that of someone else's, even when you're co-directing, as you said you did with Paul, when it's just you, how does that impact your creative process? Yeah, well, again, I always kind of saw myself as like a choreographer for those guys, and I was working in service, you know, to to their ends. But, you know, it would always be helpful. Um, when I was in college, I was very influenced by conceptual art, and that just became kind of a, I, I just kind of gravitated towards being an, um, idea guy and kind of got known for that so in pre-production you know i go like oh Stephen, we should change the dinosaur to a different dinosaur because i Crichton picked a crummy one there's a better one and things like that or i would draw out some choreography for a shot and, and paul would go eh, yeah sure that's okay and uh, you know for instance uh you know robocop really really didn't have the budget you know, I mean, it was really a strain. So I did not want to shoot any blue screen stuff with Ed 209 and, and composite live action foregrounds. So uh, Craig made a full scale robot. So and I, I proposed to Paul that, you know, I mean, just like they did in King Kong or like any other movie, they, they mixed and matched, you know, full scale props with the stop motion so the stop motion was the ambulatory stuff just like the computer graphics in in jurassic and then stan winston did the live action props and uh you just do a, a mix and match and so when the doors open and ed powers up and he walks into the room and then he shuts down you keep him alive with the pedal cord you know, that's like his soul or his voice. That is like this ominous note that keeps his spirit present, even though he's not moving. And so it's the expectation of what is this thing going to do next. And you always work with Paul with, with proposals, you know, and I pitched that to him. And he went, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. But when you're the director and you're calling the shots, you're in that position and there's no one pushing back or is there? No, no. Or someone will have a better idea uh, and come up with a shot. Do you have someone who is in your position, like your co-directors and choreographers? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as collaborative as, as movies are, you know, I would get stuck on things. I mean, I'm, I'm just so I'm, I'm bipolar. 
and I'm, I'm, I'm unipolar and I don't get depressed, but I'm manic. And that is my superpower. But once I'm on something, I'm on it like ugly on an ape and I just won't let it go. And I, for some things, I just wasted a lot of time. Chris would say, well, why don't you just, you know, let me do it in, in compositing. I was like, no, I have to figure out a practical way of doing this. And I know it's going to work. And it never did. And it took me one thing in particular about six weeks before I gave up. And, and <laughs> like in a day, he turned it around. So I, I you know, suffer from that, that doggedness, which is also a, um, a help. We have about five minutes left. So I want to ask you if there's anything about Mad God that we haven't talked about, uh, but that you want the audience to know. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, that's a broad question. I mean, how much time do we really have? Well, I, do, I don't even know. I mean, you can take as much time as you want, but um, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. You know, I'm afraid the canary does sing one song, and it's like try and think of imaginative ways to, you know, not, not repeat myself. I got, I, I, got, I got in this thing, Nikita, uh, who played the, the, the nurse. Um, was my assistant and so i would get these um you know these interviews where you would like type in you know stuff uh or a, a list of questions and they were you know all oriented towards like star wars type stuff and she had heard me and she's a very good writer she writes you know horror short stories and so she she channeled me and I would just have Nikita write out the questions, you know, the answers to the questions. Cause they're all the same, you know? So, but this is mad God mixes and matches a, a little bit more cause it tends to, you know, kind of veer into the philosophical, you know, more than, um, you know, or uh, artistic more than the, the old day job. Well, it's the work of your life. Yeah, apparently. Well, Phil, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your career and your work and Mad God. It's been a real pleasure and an honor. Thanks. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and share it with your friends. You can follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can visit us at theasc.com for more content on the art and craft of cinematography, including Clubhouse Conversations, our popular online program features leading cinematographers and other filmmakers discussing their creative process and collaborations in recent projects. The latest entries include Outer Range, Halo, and The Dropout. You'll also find cinematographer profiles, flashback stories where we reprint articles from vintage issues, more podcasts, new products and services, and just about anything related to the art and craft of filmmaking. TheASC.com. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap.